Well, we are continuing in Second Samuel, so we are we're nearing the end. Uh, but but this this morning we're going to be in Second Samuel chapters eight through ten of Second Samuel. So if you have your Bible, turn to to Second Samuel eight. We're not going to read all uh, of the chapters, but we are going to read uh, a good portion of them in in a few minutes. And as we come to come to this section, th- this section marks. Um, we're going to see, so, so if you weren't with us last week, last week in 2 Samuel 7, there's a, a pretty big commitment, a pretty big covenant made between David and the Lord. So the Lord tells David, you're going to be my king, and you're going to have a, a place on a throne that's going to last forever. And so it's this eternal covenant that, that the Lord makes with David. And so David is seen as, as God's chosen king. This is, it's an official, it's a covenant agreement that the Lord says, I'm going to do this with you and through you, David. So, so chapter 7 was a, was a big mark in the life of David, as well as the life of Israel and their monarchy. And then chapters 8, 9, and 10, they follow chapter 7, and what they do is they illustrate an ideal reign of God's king. And so in these chapters, David is seen as the covenant king, the one that the Lord has committed to. David is seen as, if you will, the, the one who has God on his side. And so after the covenant is entered into in chapter 7, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are marked by the ideal reign of the ideal king, and it's seen in two ways. In in, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, chapters 8 and 10 sandwich chapter 9. And so in 8 and 10, we see the ideal reign of David in his might, his power, the victories that he wins over his enemies. He He was clearly a man of war, David was. He was mighty, and he ruled all of Israel well. And so there's one verse in here that says he administered justice and equality to all his people. So he rules well with might and power. So that's chapters 8 and 10, but chapter 9, in between these chapters of war, we see David, not only a mighty king who rules well, but he's also a king who has compassion, who shows mercy. And so we're going to see this this combination, this perfect combination of, of the king. And so David is the ideal king, and we're going to see his ideal reign. David reaches his height in terms of description and perception, but we have to look quickly at chapters 8 through 10 because chapter 11, we see David's shortcomings. This ideal reign, at last, it's very short because chapter 11, we see David's fall and things begin to unravel rather quickly. So in one sense, these chapters are the calm before the storm because when David sins and, and his humanity comes through in chapter 11, things go south quickly. Well, let's Let's read, let's begin, we're just going to read chapter 8, so it's, it's just the first um, 18 verses, um, so chapter 8 is 18 verses, so follow along as I read, um, as we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 8. Remember, this is after chapter 7, after God has made this covenant, this commitment to David, that he's going he's to be his king. Verse 1 of chapter 8, after this, David defeated the Philistines, and he subdued them, and David took Metheg Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezar, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for the 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. 
And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. And Joram, that's the son of Toi, brought with him articles of silver and gold and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom and Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Amalek, the son of Abathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary, and Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. So here we have the first section. Let, let me show you here the outline. We're, we're going to break it down into, into three sections. So, so we just read chapter 8 first. So we're going to see first, we're going to look at chapter 8, David and his enemies. And then second in, in chapter 9, we'll see David and Mephibosheth. And then third, we'll see David and the Ammonites. But let, let's, right, we just read chapter 8. Let's, let's look through that. So, so as we come to chapter 8, just to remind you again, it comes after chapter 7. Okay, that, that's basic math, right? 8 comes after 7. But, but that's really important to know when you're reading your Bible because context helps interpret what things mean. And so chapters 8, 9, and 10 have to be understood in light of what comes before. We don't just drop in chapter 8 and say, oh, well, here we are. No, it, there, there's a line, a, a storyline that we follow. And so chapter 8 is showing the outworking of God's covenant promise to David in chapter 7. Immediately after the, the writer recorded the phenomenal promises that the Lord revealed to David, chapter 7, he began presenting materials that demonstrate their fulfillment. And so 8, 9, and 10 is showing the fulfillment of God's promises made to David in chapter 7. He does this primarily through, as we, as we read in chapter 8, through giving David victory. Did you notice in, in verse 6 and verse 14 there's this phrase repeated, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's in verse 6, and then at the end of verse 14, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And so throughout chapter 8, the Lord is giving victory to David. So it's over the Philistines, over the Moabites, over this, this king of Zobah, over Aram, Damascus, and over Edom. All of these are, are peoples, are nations that the Lord is giving David victory over. And so in, in defeating these enemies, David's rule is extending. So his geographic rule is, is extending from far north to far south. So, so his territory is spreading. Israel is being established as a prominent power. So, so they're conquering other powerful nations. And it's all because God had promised to do it to David in, or for David in chapter 7. But in addition to these victories, notice what, what else David does. So look there in verse 2. So he, he defeats the Moabites, and the, it says the Moabites brought David tribute. Verse 6, the Syrians brought David tribute. Verse 7, David took gold shields and much bronze. And then verse 10, Joram brought silver and gold and bronze. And then verse 11, King David dedicated all these to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. And so David, 
as he's establishing peace all around Israel, so this is what, this is what kings did in that time, right? They, they had to subdue any other powers that might rise up. And so as this is happening, he sets up his rule in these places. And, and what they do, because he's clearly the superior power, he's defeated them, they pay tribute. They, they, they say, okay, you are the greater power. And so they, they send him tribute. And so he's, he's defeating all these nations and, and all of this gold and silver and bronze is coming. And what David is doing, right, he's not taking these and hoarding them to himself, but what is he doing? He's, he's dedicating them to who? To the Lord. He's dedicating all of this to the Lord. In other words, he's setting it all aside. So all this gold and silver and bronze, these are powerful nations that he's conquering that are sending lots and lots of stuff. Lots and lots of stuff. And so he's setting it aside because, remember what, ha- what the Lord said in chapter 7. What is David's son going to do? He's going to build a temple for the Lord. And so David says, I'm not the one who's going to build the temple, but, but I know my son is, and so all this stuff's going to be really helpful whenever the time comes. So I'm just going to dedicate it to the Lord, and it's just going to be stored until the time comes, until my son is commissioned to build the temple. And so he's not hoarding it to himself. Instead, he's setting it aside because he knows that there's going to be a use for it. He's not selfish in this. And so in doing this, we could miss this, but in doing this, David is being set forth as an ideal king. And so in Deuteronomy 17, you can just write this down. This is a significant chapter when it comes to Israel and the monarchy because all the way in Deuteronomy, which was before 2 Samuel, Moses gives Israel warnings about when they get a king. He's going to say, okay, beware, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is what a king's going to do. And he gives these prohibitions. And one of the things, let me just read, I'm going to read two verses from Deuteronomy 17. So listen to this is Moses telling the Israelites, the monarchy isn't anywhere close to being carried out in Israel when Moses is saying this. Okay, but he's saying, okay, when a king comes, here's some warnings. So listen to what he says. Here's verses 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy 17. Moses says, only he, that is the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not ever return that way again. And Moses continues, and he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so these are warnings that, that Moses laid out for the kings of Israel. And so here in 2 Samuel 8, David is being laid out as the ideal king. He's faithful to the Lord. He doesn't acquire excessive silver or gold for himself. Instead, he dedicates it to the Lord. And even that strange thing about he hamstrung the horses. So some of you animal horse lovers will say, well, that's not fair. Why, why would you do that? That just simply means that they, they couldn't run like they could, like they originally could. Right? So, so they can't be weapons of war anymore. So he hamstrings the horses. So David, instead of saying, wow, look at all these horses, let's add them to, to the mil- military might of Israel, he says, okay, we're going to hamstring them. Okay, I'm not going to acquire many horses for myself because Moses said, don't do that. So he's following, not only is he, is he refusing to, to get lots of gold and silver for himself, but he's also refusing to build his military through the use of horses, which the Lord says, don't do it. And so he is Israel's ideal king. And so there in verse 15, I think there's a good summary of David's rule so far. It says, David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all his people. And so he is a good king, right? For the Israelites, it's good for them to have this king in power. And so here in chapter 8, we see an important truth, which is simply this. The Lord gives the victory. And I think that's, that's the basic application point from chapter 8. The Lord gives victory. One thing is clear. 
is that God's promises of chapter 7 are driving the action in chapter 8, and all of the success, every victory that David accomplishes here, it's not because of David's power, it's not because of David's might, it's not because of David's ingenuity or his military prowess. Instead, it's because the Lord gives him victory. The Lord gives victory, and he must give victory, and he does give victory because he's promised to do so. And so for us, now we're not fighting Philistines or Moabites, and so, so don't hear me say, right, some people would say, well, look, look, Christians are supposed to wage war at all the other nations. That's, that's not at all what this is saying, right? This, is, this, can, this can never be used for, for evidence of Christians waging war. That, that totally misses the point. We're not fighting. We don't wage a war nationally. Right? So we don't believe that America is a Christian nation with God on its side uniquely. So we're not fighting Philistines and Moabites, but as Christians, we are in battles every day, aren't we? Christians are in battle. So, so we wage war. Let me give you three of our enemies. The, the flesh, right? You are your greatest enemy in this Christian battle. Right? Don't, don't think, well, it's, it's, it's Satan. It's, it's, it's the world. It's outside. No, you're waging war against yourself. I'm waging war against myself. So we wage war against our flesh. We do wage war against the world and its systems, in Satan, so the flesh, the world, and Satan, this is, this is thing, these are things we wage war against. They all oppose us on regular basis. But, but, but the, the application from here is that our hope, so whatever battles you're facing, and whatever sin struggles you're dealing with, fleshly desires, whatever it is, your hope in the midst of these battles isn't primarily fight harder, playing better, run away, anything else. Primarily, that's not your hope. Your hope primarily is to recognize that the Lord is the one who gives victory. He can and, and he will, especially when he's made promises that are related to your battles. He's the one that we turn to and we call upon. So don't just try harder and say, I, I've got to stop this. I've got to fight this. I've got to be nicer. No, we say, Lord, help me. Lord, give me victory because the Lord does. He's the one who gives victory. And don't forget, he's the one who's made promises to us that guarantee those victories. And so in the same way that David's victories in chapter 8 are driven by the Lord's promises in chapter 7, so too any hope of Christian victory in this life must be driven by God's promises to us. And so our, 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 our assurance of victory is directly connected to his promises. And so if we start claiming promises for things he hasn't promised, right, we're, we're wrong, we're in error, we're off track. But where God has made promises, we should claim all day those victories and those promises. We can confidently anticipate and even claim victory over those. So, so things like comfort and affliction, things like he's going to complete what he started in you, things like forgiveness of sins or, or promise of, of Jesus to the woman at the well. Whoever drinks the water that I give will well up to eternal life or death is one day going to be destroyed or one day there's going to be a resurrection where, where the immortal will be clothed with where mortality will be clothed with immortality. And I especially, that's especially comforting and a promise for, for the, the, the parents of that son today. One day they're going to see him again because he's going to be raised immortal. That's a promise that God has made to those who trust in Christ. And so, and so, where, so wherever God has made promises, we should claim those victories, and he's the one who's going to do it. We don't do it ourselves. God gives a victory. Well, let's look at chapter 9. So, so let's move on to chapter 9. Not only was David's strength and might on display through his rule, but we also see chapter 9, we see David's mercy, his compassion on display. So 
So follow along, I'm going to read these, these, first, these 14 verses of chapter 9. So here we've seen David's might in his military victory, but now we see his, his mercy. Verse 1 of chapter 9, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there still... Is, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel of, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and he brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, this one, he the son of Saul came to David, and he fell on his face, and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage, and he said, What is your servant that you would show regard for a dead dog such as I? Verse 9, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I've given to your master's grandson. I've given to Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will I do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. And so on the heels of David's rise and establishment as king of all of Israel, he turns his attention to the family line of, of the previous king. He wants to know, is there anyone left in Saul's house that he can show kindness to? Now, now, just so you know, this is not normal monarchical practice. When a new line takes the throne, when they search out the, the descendants of the previous line, it's not to show them kindness. It's to eliminate them, right? People that rose to the throne, they had to eliminate all future opposition. The traditional practice would have been for David to seek out, to ask the same question, is there anyone of the house of Saul left? But then when finding an answer to that, he would, be, he would eliminate them. In the ancient, here, here's a quote from, from one commentator. In the ancient Near East, the family of a king replaced by usurper did not generally expect to receive kindness. In fact, new dynasties were routinely accompanied by bloodletting among the family of the old order. So having established himself in the kingdom of Israel, chapter 8, chapter 9 shows David is not like a normal king, like a normal ancient Near East king. And so when he asks the question in verse 1, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? There's a context there. <clears throat> so if you remember, if you weren't with us, David for a long time was not king. He was actually a, a servant on the run. <clears throat> and the man who was king was trying to kill him. He was relentlessly pursuing him all over. And David, while he was on the run, he found a friendship with a, a man named Jonathan, who happened to be the son of the king who wanted to kill David. And Jonathan, throughout the, this whole thing, this whole process, Jonathan and David were strong friends. They were kindred spirits. 
And Jonathan committed himself to David because he knew that the Lord had committed himself to David. And Jonathan and David, they, they were this friendship, this couple, and Jonathan showed constant support for David instead of siding with his father. So Jonathan, if he sides with Saul, he becomes next king, but he says, no, no, that's not what the Lord wants. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to befriend J- David, and I'm going to be his supporter. And so in, in, in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, David and Jonathan, this is kind of like their, their parting meeting, they make this covenant together. And, and David and Jonathan says to David, don't ever forsake my house. As long as you live, the Lord's going to make you king. Don't forsake my house. And David says, I won't. So there's this agreement agreed upon. <clears throat> and so David in verse 1 of chapter 9 says, is anyone left for Saul's house that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He wants to be faithful to his word to Jonathan. Now it's, Jonathan's gone, everyone's gone, there's only one man left. How easy for David to have said, oh, I, it doesn't really matter. I know I said that, but it doesn't matter now. Right? But David is faithful to his word, and so he seeks out this, this one. Who is anyone left? So, so he's pointed to, to Ziba, who was a servant of Saul's house, and Ziba says, yeah, there's, there's one son left. Verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. So he calls, he says, Ziba, go get, go get, go get the son that you're telling me about. So Mephibosheth comes before him, verse 6. Mephibosheth comes and he falls down. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. So just imagine, enter into the experience of Mephibosheth here. He's a former member of, he's a member, the only member left of the former line that was ruling over Israel. Now the new king has called him. Remember, he's the only one left. He goes to the king and he says, behold, I'm your servant, falls down. Imagine the fear of Mephibosheth. What's going to happen? Why does the king want to see me? I'm the only one with my last name left in the whole world. Why does he want to see me, the new king? So he falls down. And notice how David responds, verse 7. David said to him, do not fear. He knew Mephibosheth, don't fear. I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I'm going to restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth says, what what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And so David says, don't be afraid. I'm, I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to restore to you all the land of Saul. And I'm going to give you a seat at my table, not, not like this weekend, not like this month, not like for a year, but, but always. As long as you live, you're going to be welcomed at my table. You're going to have a seat. And so we, can, we can't downplay the, the significance of these words. These are life-changing words from Mephibosheth. David issues this, this decree that changed Mephibosheth's fortunes forever. He would never be the same. He had received the favor, the loving kindness, the mercy of this king of whom he was a natural-born enemy. And this, chapter 9, shows us the gospel of grace. We see it here. This is one of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament of the gospel of grace. The story of Mephibosheth is the story of the gospel. An enemy of the king receives mercy. In this story, when Mephibosheth is called, wrath and judgment could have been carried out and not an eye would be batted. If David wipes him out, no one raises much concern. But here, David shows mercy. He shows mercy. He remembers his covenant. And he shows mercy. And Mephibosheth's life is changed forever. And don't forget the fact that Mephibosheth was, was a, a lame. He's lame in both feet. He can't come. He can't come. If he wanted to, to take over the throne, was he really a threat to King David? No. 
He's not going to lead a, a revolt. He's, he can't do anything on his own. And David, seeing him in his need, says, I'm going to show him kindness. And he's going to be part of my family. He's going to eat at my table, whatever he wants. And so the lame man who was outcast, who had been taken away, hadn't been in Israel, been, been left to be forgotten, is now remembered by the king. And so if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, this is the gospel of grace that, that is the foundation of Christianity. Because the story of Christianity is built upon not David, but the greater David, Jesus, who is a far better king, who is a more faithful king, who is a far merciful, more merciful king than David. And, and Jesus offers mercy to those who don't deserve it. He's merciful. He's a merciful king. And, and it's not as though you have to make yourself better, heal your lame feet, and walk to his table. He knows better than that. If that were the case, no one would ever come. No one could ever come. Instead, Jesus sees you in your sin and says, come forth, come, welcome. You're, you're welcome in my family, part of, part of my table forever. No cost, no price, no duty, just blessing and mercy. That's the offer that Jesus makes to all of you this morning. Come to my table, be part of my family. I mean, think about Mephibosheth, no family left. And here's the king, the most powerful man in the world saying, come be part of my family. The invitation that Christ offers to you is, is far greater than that. I don't know your past. I don't know what your family life is like, but, but, but you may be lonely. Jesus offers a better family. He offers acceptance and love and mercy, not based on what you deserve or what you've done. That's the beauty of it. None of us deserve to be in the family. That's what grace is. And so if you're not a Christian, come to the table. Jesus is for you. He's ready and willing to show you mercy. Turn. Turn from living outside of the kingdom and come to the king. You will not be turned away. And if you're here and you're a Christian, the song we sang last week, Carried to the Table, this should just remind you, you've been carried to the table. I've been carried to the table. We don't deserve to be here, yet here we find ourselves. In relationship with the, the king of the universe, the almighty, all-powerful Jesus who's freely forgiven our sins. Here we are. How did we get here? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That ought to be all of our refrain when we think about the mercy that's been shown us in Christ. One commentator writes, the first principle in grappling with God's love is to realize that he has no business loving who he loves. What I'm saying is that we are the Lord's Mephibosheths, and there's absolutely no reason why we should be eating continually at the king's table. And if we have any sense, we won't be able to understand it either. We don't say, oh, that's why. That's why he chose me. That's why I received mercy. No, we, we don't understand it. We say, here I am, worthless as I am, yet, yet he's welcomed me to the table. So Christian, we ought to be, be overwhelmed with God's kindness to us that's been shown in Christ. Well, then lastly, we see chapter 10, David and the Ammonites. The last chapter, I'm not going to read this, but follow along because I'm, I'm just going to take us through. So look there at verse 1 of chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. So a king, another king dies, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I'm going to deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sends his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites. So David, right, so, so continuing to show his character, so he showed compassion to Mephibosheth. Now he wants to show compassion or loving kindness to Hanun, this, this young king whose father has just died. 
So again, this is the compassion of David. I'm going to sin. There, there's no ill motives. It's just, hey, I'm going to send my servants to, to console him in this time of loss. David's not expecting this to be controversial, but notice what happens in verse 3. But the princes of the Ammonites, so these are his counselors, the, the king has this court of counselors, and the, the, the princes of the Ammonites said to this king, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father, do you really think that's what he's doing? Has not David done this by sending his servants to you to search out the city and to spy it out, to overthrow it? In other words, these, these counselors say, yeah, right. A merciful king of Israel? Yeah, right. He's just, he's just getting info or intel so then he can come invade us. That's all he's doing. And so these counselors, they, they can't believe that David would simply send his servants to console their king. So they say he, he's ill-intentioned, he's scheming, don't believe him. And so, verse 4, he listens to these worthless counselors. He took David's servants, he shaved off half of the beard of each, and he cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. He took the servants, he shaves off half the beard, and he, he cuts off their garments at the waist, so there's nothing below the waist, and he sends them, he says, go on home. This king has embarrassed, has humiliated these servants. I mean, they were sent on a mission from the king of Israel to console the king on the death of his father. They're sent home with half a face of hair and, and nothing covering them. They're exposed, embarrassed, and they're sent home. Hanun's treatment of the men would have de desecrated these men's bodies, their clothes, and their national mission. They are an embarrassment to Israel now. And now they're told, go back home now that you're desecrated and unclean and, and unworthy to be an Israelite. I mean, I mean, these actions render these men's vi men violators of God's law, right? So, so part of, part of the, the Torah, the, the law of the Israelites, was, was men were supposed to have full beards, and they were supposed to have, have a certain robing that, that they wore. That was part of their identity as Israelites. And so when they're sent home, they're, they're violators of how they're commanded to live. And that was certainly intentional on behalf of this king and his counselors. And so they're treated shamefully. And so for David, remember, it was, it was about compassion, but it's no longer an issue of compassion. Instead, it's a matter of justice. And he shows his ideal king, kingship not by saying, okay, let them go. They didn't know what they were doing. No, instead, he's going to care for his own. He's going to shepherd them. He says, okay, when it, verse 5, when it's told David, he sent to meet them. So he sent some people there, probably got some clothes or, or something to cover up. And he meets them, and David says, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. Don't, don't come back yet. I, I don't want your embarrassment to be mounted upon a mound. Just stay there. Don't worry about it. Stay there. When, when you're ready to come back, come back. And so he sends him to Jericho. Then he says, come on back. And so, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of David. Right? That's his compassion to, to those of his own that he sent on this mission. Well, the, the Ammonites, as the chapter continues, they, they know that David's not going to receive this well. And so they know this is going to provoke David. And so this sets the stage for the coming battles between Israel and the Ammonites. And this is actually going to play a part in chapter 11. But the Ammonites, they know David's going to retaliate, so they gather all these soldiers. And it's not just the Ammonites. Now all these Syrian groups of people join the Ammonites in verses 6 through 8. So there's just all these groups that are coming to the aid of this king. And so David sends out his forces to fight. When verse 9, so here, here war, is, war is gathering, the, the storms are, are gathering, storm clouds, war is about to happen. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, 
he chose some of the best men of Israel, and he arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And so it's almost like here's the Israelites in the middle, there's Ammonites on this side, and there's Syrians on this side. And so Israel says, okay, we've got to split up. So Joab says, okay, I'm going to face them, you face them, to his brother Abishai. And notice verse 11, notice their battle plan. I think this is amusing. Their plan, Joab says, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Right? Is this a great battle plan? Okay, let, let's just fight, and if you're losing, I'm going to come help you, but if I'm losing, you come help me. Right? I mean, what happens if you're both losing? This is clearly not a good plan, but that's what they're going to do. So they're being surrounded, and that's what they're going to do. And so that's what Joab says. Here's what we're going to do. In verse 12, notice Joab showing, showing courage, showing faith, despite his poor battle plans. Look what he says to his men. He says, verse 12, Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So he says, Let, let's do this. Be of good courage. Maybe, maybe this is a William Wallace type speech. I don't know. But he says, be of good courage. I know it's not a good plan. I know we're overmatched. I, I know you're probably scared, but, but let's be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. Right? This battle is bigger than what we're doing right here now. And let the Lord do what seems good to him. That, that's courage. That's faith. He, that's trusting the Lord's going to do what he, see, what he seems fit to do. And so as you see in verses 13 through 18, the battle does go well for Israel. The Lord gives them victory over Hadadezer and all of his allies. And, and the chapter closes, verse 19, all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel. They made peace with Israel. They became subjects to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. And so again, we see David's military victory in chapter 10 as it closes. So the, this whole section, we've seen his might but we've also seen his mercy. And so the, the final point of application that I want to make from this as we, as we close is simply what I've titled the theology of Joab. The theology of Joab. I think here in verse 12 of chapter 10, we see good theology. Right? And, so, and so the application is for us, we all have situations in life where we don't know what to do. Where maybe, it, maybe it's you're in despair. There's no good that's going to come out of this. What am I supposed to do? There's no good option. Maybe that's it. Or maybe it's the other and saying, there, there's nothing but good options. How do I choose the best one? And, and all in between, we face circumstances where a clear plan of action is not there for us. We say, well, what are we supposed to do? And I think from Joab, we see what we don't do is just sit and keep thinking. We don't just wait indefinitely and say, well... Oh, well, let, we don't have a clear plan. Let, let's wait for the Lord to deliver a battle plan and, until, until we get that. We're just going to sit here. No, at, at some point, you just have to act. You have to say, okay, we don't know, but, but we're trusting the Lord. And so, and so the theology of Joab, he's not uncertain, saying, well, let's just willy-nilly. No, he's confident we've got to do something, and the Lord's going to act the way that the Lord is going to act. And so it's a, it is a statement of faith on behalf of Joab. And so I think as Christians, let us act. Let us get to the point where we can say, Lord, I trust you. I don't know. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I don't know if this is what's best, but, but I'm trusting you, and I'm, I'm going to move forward in faith, trusting that you're going to do what seems right. So the theology of Joab, verse 12, may the Lord do what seems good to him. At the end of the day, sometimes that's just what we have to do. And the good news is, 
The good news is the Lord is never against us or working for our, our downfall. And so when we act, if things don't go the way we thought, it's not because we chose wrong, it's because the Lord saw fit to show us something in this direction. The Lord is good, and He's promised to work for our good. And so, at the end of the day, sometimes we just need to say, let us act, and may the Lord do what seems good. Well, let's pray as we close.